You know, Lee just talked about being in the center of God's will and some things you can do to do that, and I wholeheartedly agree. And there are a variety of things that are clear in Scripture, and another one is that striving to see things from the vantage point of another is a holy endeavor. Striving to see things from the vantage point or through the eyes of someone else is a holy endeavor. And in a way, it's something that we all do or have done with some regularity. I remember being a, being a kid and uh, thinking about things that I enjoyed and things I might want to do when I grew up. And, and there was little doubt in my mind that come Sunday afternoons, I would be a star in the NFL. I was going to be a running back. My favorite football player was Sweetness himself, Walter Payton, played for the Chicago Bears, and so I was going to be a, a running back and follow in his footsteps. And this started to lead to some difficulties because I started to think, well, how am I going to do this? Because, you know, the NFL season and uh, around Christmas time, the playoffs are starting to happen and the Super Bowl is in February. And that's when the NBA is happening as well. It's getting underway because I was not only going to be a star running back in the NFL, you see, I also adored Irvin Magic Johnson for the Los Angeles Lakers. So I was not only going to be a star running back, I was also going to be a star point guard. And so I'm, I'm sorting through how am I going to do all these things, and so I'm going, to, I'm going to wear number 32 as a running back, and I'm going to wear number 34 as a star point guard. And some of you are, are probably thinking beyond the Snickers and looking at me and thinking, yeah, like those things would ever have happened. You're thinking, well, wait a second. Walter Payton was number 34 and Magic Johnson was number 32. Not only would that have not happened, but you've got stuff confused in your head. And there's good reason for why I would have to do that. And the reason is simple. I'm obviously going to play running back for the Chicago Bears, right? I mean, who else would I play for? And Walter Payton's jersey would be retired, so I would kind of like honor Magic Johnson on the football field by wearing 32. And then when it came time for the NBA, well, I would just kind of flip and I would wear 34 in honor of Walter Payton because obviously I'd play for the Lakers and Magic Johnson's jersey would have been retired by the time I played as well. I mean, I had this, I had this all thought out. It was quite simple to see. We've all desired to be something different. Right? We all desire to be something different even now. now not just childhood things, but, but even in the here and now, we have a desire to be something different. You know, I find it interesting in reflecting on that, that those athletes that I admired were the favorites of one of my older brothers as well. And some of you may be thinking, well, what does that have to do with anything about what you just said a little bit ago about it's a holy endeavor to, to strive to see things through the eyes of another. What, what, is, what does childhood fantasies have to do with that? And I'll come back to that in just a moment, trust me. But I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Titus, because that's where we will be this morning for the bulk of our time. But I do say that the Bible encourages us and, and teaches us that viewing things from the vantage point of the other is a holy endeavor, because... I think this is one of the things that the incarnation of Jesus shows us very clearly. Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. 
and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus became tired. Jesus became hungry. Jesus had to sleep. Jesus faced temptation. The author of Hebrews says that he was tempted in all the ways that we are, but yet without sin. And so what we see in Jesus, we see the ability to enter into someone else's place and see things from their vantage point because he became flesh and took on flesh just as we have. Yet he lived life in such a way that he showed us what God is inviting us into. And I couldn't help but notice that in the songs that we sung this morning also, we're invited to see things from the vantage point of another. Because if you notice in uh, the second song we did, you split the sea so I could walk right through it. Some of us might be thinking, well, no, he didn't. That was like the Israelites a long time ago. But we're putting ourselves in their position. And interestingly, this is the exact same thing that Moses invites the people to do in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where he's entering into the second covenant, with, or not the second, but he's reaffirming the covenant with the generation that after they'd wandered around in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you can look, it says that he's reminding them of the covenant that they entered into at Mount Sinai. He said, God didn't enter into it with your fathers, but he entered into it with you. And again, I'm thinking, well, no, he didn't. He entered into it with that generation that was alive there. But no, you see, the Bible continuously invites us to step into the shoes of others because it's a holy endeavor to see things through the eyes of another person. And so with that, and with Jesus putting himself in our shoes, so to say, what I want to do is I want to invite us here this morning to put ourselves into the, I guess it would be the sandals or the bare feet, of the people who first received this letter of Paul to Titus. Now, I do acknowledge that this was written primarily to Titus, but it's not as if no one else ever heard it. I mean, one implication of that is like we have it in our, our Bible, so we know that it was useful for others. And while it is primarily directed to Titus, there, there's things throughout for us, and even the way that Paul concludes the letter in verse 15 of chapter 3, all who are with me send greetings to you, plural, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So it's, it's kind of this both and. It's the Titus, yes, primarily, but it's also for the group of people who are following Jesus there as well. And so I want to walk through a few things and invite us to try and overhear a little bit of what may have been happening in the minds of some people as they received this letter. And they would have been hearing it read at some point in time in their worship gatherings because that was the, the common practice. They didn't have their own uh, Bible like we have, like this, or when it, maybe it's on your phone through an app. They would have uh, heard it, and they would have been working on committing it to memory, and there would have been copies eventually made. But initially, they would have simply heard it. And in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And some people were probably thinking, ah, well, that's why he's here. I, I wondered why this Titus guy stayed behind, and, and my goodness, if he's to put things in order, he's doing a pretty poor job of that. This is like a dumpster fire here. I mean, people are just doing whatever they want. People are, are talking and teaching all sorts of crazy things. He, he's, not even doing, he's not even doing what he's supposed to be doing here. And then, and then somebody might be thinking, good grief, where's my phone? Get on... Facebook and thinking, wait, oh, need to check in. Okay, all right, First Baptist of Crete. Okay, checked in. I'm here today. Got that. 
But then they're looking, where was that group about complaining about the church leaders? Complaining, gripe about your church leaders? No, that's that, that, not a bad group, but I'm looking, there, yes, Titus can't hack at that group. The group that I was invited to earlier, I'm going to go ahead and join that thing because, man, he is just dropping the ball and absolutely nothing is happening here. And the letter continues on a little bit further, and he says that he's to appoint elders in every town as he directed him. And he's like, my goodness, yes, we, need, we, need, we don't need this guy. We need some leaders. We need some things to happen because things are a mess. And a little bit later in verse 11, or chapter 1 in verse 11, talking about these people who need to be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. And the guy's thinking, my goodness, family's upset. I got that. I mean, did you see the look my wife gave me when I was on Facebook just a moment ago when they were reading things? It is going to be like rough for me when I get home for lunch today. And then he starts to check out a little bit maybe, or this could be also the, the wife doing this as well. But then they come to chapter 2, verse 1, and as they're hearing things, and Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's like, yes, my goodness, we need some teaching that is going to bring some health to this body so that we can do the things that God has for us. And their mind may have started to drift into the things that Titus is not doing and the ways in which Titus is not measuring up or the things they've heard about someone else and wishing that they were perhaps there and being a leader. And they would have missed things like chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says that older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Or a little bit later in, in verse 5 about how younger women are to be self-controlled and they're to be that way because there's older women who is train them. Or in verse 6, about how the younger men are to be self-controlled as well. And when they're talking about Jesus and God's grace appearing, starting in verse 11 of chapter 2, and redeeming them, and that may have started to resonate a little bit and started to think, you know, well, maybe, maybe there's some things for me here in this letter. And it's not just all about Titus and the things that he's not doing well. But then verse 15 would have rolled around and Paul says directly to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. And then their mind may have just kind of went over there again and just thinking about once again the things that Titus is not doing and how things are a mess here and things don't seem to be getting any better and how much longer are I going to stick it out. And they would have missed things that Jason will talk about next week in chapter 3 about how we, all of us, were once disobedient and foolish and led astray. Would have missed the phrase about how God's people are to be um, devoting themselves to good works in chapter 3, verse 8. And so they make it through the service and they get home and they're having conversation with their spouse, whether it's the husband talking to the wife or vice versa. And one of them says, well, what are you going to do this afternoon? And one says, well, I'm going to go to this group that's, you know, been talking about things and, and uh, you know, we're just dissatisfied about some stuff and we're trying to get things figured out and all this stuff. And man, I've just had it and Titus isn't cutting it out. And the spouse would have said, well, didn't you listen to the letter that was read this morning? And he said, well, yes, I listened to the letter that was read. Titus was put here to get things into order, and it's a dumpster fire. Weren't you listening to the letter that was read this morning? And the spouse said, well, yeah, I was listening. And you see, they wouldn't have been able to look at their Bible, but they would have had to go on memory. But I, and the spouse would have said, you know, I was just really amazed when, when Paul wrote about God's grace appearing. 
And you see, grace is one of these words that is just loaded and loaded with, with connotations and implications. And on one hand, you know, a way that we talk about it quite often is that it's a way of remembering is, is um, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's true. That is very true, but yet grace is so multifaceted that it is more than that. I don't remember the individual's name, but someone in the fourth century talked about grace basically being God's uh, energizing presence and his ability to bring about change. And, and that fits right in line here with about how God's grace is training us. And the spouse would have talked about, you know, and it's about God's grace training us. And, and this word that's being talked about there, it's a word about taking children and trying to shape and mold them in, in the way that the parent desires for them to go. And these things are happening because God's grace has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then here we have salvation, once again, a very rich biblical word. And on one hand, salvation does mean things that are to come as far as, uh, if we want to say the life to come or eternity with God. That is true. But salvation is also something that has invaded the present now. It's astounding when you read the biblical text and you see things, and I'm thinking of the instance in, uh, in the Gospels where there is a, um, uh, Jairus' daughter is sick and at home, and she actually dies while Jesus is en route. But the reason why Jesus was delayed in getting there is that a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years comes up behind him because she's been bleeding and no one can, no one can fix her. She's been to doctors, she's given all her money, and she reaches out and she thinks, if I can just touch the hem of his robe... And she does. And then Jesus goes like all Jedi and people, and he's like, somebody touched me. And the disciples are thinking, how can you know that? There's like a whole bunch of people here. He's like, no, somebody touched me. I felt the power go out. And the woman comes, and she kneels before Jesus, and he says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Now, it's translated as healed, and I don't say that's a bad translation, but what I am saying and pointing out is salvation is holistic. There are saving works of God that he brings into the lives of people now, and he will one day fully complete, but God's grace has come, and it's bringing salvation for all people, and it is training us to renounce certain things and to say yes to certain other things. And you see, I think the spouse would have been saying, I think Paul is calling us to something more, not just Titus. And so I want to flesh that out a little bit for us here this morning. And so in your, in your Bible, or if you don't have one, I know there's some in the back, but on your phone or in your uh, paper copy, good grief, I couldn't even think of what to say, what to say in their paper copy. I just want to highlight some things, and I'd encourage you to jump around with me here in, in the text. Because see, God's grace trains us to renounce, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but also to live self-controlled. And I would encourage you to, uh, to underline or circle self-controlled. Because it's not the first time that this word has popped up in the text. It happens actually for the first time in chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul is saying what the elders or the overseers are to be. They're to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. There's that word. So what Jesus is training people to be is what Paul is saying Titus needs to look for in these people who are to lead the church. They're to be self-controlled. But it also occurs, as, as you heard just a little bit ago, in chapter 2, verse 2. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Older women, likewise, um, they are to teach what is good and so train. Here's, here's the word, uh, uh, the root of that word for self-controlled is there in that word train. Train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. And this word self-control here, it, at the root of the word, it deals with our mind and with our thinking. And so we're not talking about simple behavior modification. We're talking about a way of thinking, a way of viewing the world that is different, and the change comes from the inside out. That's what he's talking about. And so I just want to bring us back to uh, the, during the, the praise part of the worship service when we had the moment with the song uh, with the palms down and the hands up, the contemplative practice. And I don't, I mean, if you engaged in that, that's wonderful. If you didn't, that's okay. We're all at different levels of comfort with that. I would encourage you even to step out in some, into some things that maybe you're not so comfortable with because that's part of life. But I simply go there to point out the reality that this self-control is a thinking word. And that's all that Robert was asking you to do with the contemplation, the practice. It's, it's getting our mind in tune with things that we're thinking we're holistic beings, in other words. Now, I, I, do, I do want to say this, because I, I, I believe there are people who will search these things out, and you're not just going to take what I'm saying, and that's a good thing. And you have your own concordance or can navigate through some original languages, and you will see that technically, technically, the word for self-controlled is not the exact same word in chapter 1, verse 8, at least in a, a lexicon that we have today. And the reason why is because in chapter 2, verse 12, it's an adverb, and in chapter 1, verse 8, it's an adjective. Okay? We'll just, that will drop the technical stuff there. Just thank you for fifth grade grammar where all that stuff was introduced to me and I paid no attention, but now it's extremely important to me. But you know what? I say that because words matter, right? I, was, I, was, I had an aha moment earlier today. While we were singing, um, uh, the very first song, this is Amazing Grace, worthy is the lamb who was slain, worthy is the lamb who... I most often just by default say seeing conquered the grave as in past. What do the words actually say? Conquers as in present. And the thing is, I hear other people saying conquered as in past. Now, it, did he conquer the grave as in past? Yes. But the words that we say say conquers because guess what? Every time a person dies, if they're in Christ, who do they meet on the other side of death? Jesus, and that is conquering death in the present. I was just, I just had this aha epiphany moment back there. It's like, those are things that I know and I think and I believe and I tell people, but I was like, it's right there in a the song. I've been singing that song wrong for like, I don't even know how many years I've been singing it. Anyway, just kind of a side, technical stuff, songs, trying to tie it all together here. But what I want you to see is that these things that Paul is saying for other people, it's rooted in the grace of Jesus that trains us. Chapter 2, verse 12. We are trained to live self-controlled, upright. That same word, once again, a different part of speech, occurs in chapter 1, verse 8. The elder must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright. And the thing is that the root of that word is a word for justice. God setting things right, the way that God desires things to be. That's at the root of that word there. Chapter 2, verse 12, the things that God's grace is training us to do, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. A related word for that is in chapter 1, verse 1. 
the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And then he purifies himself for a possession of his own who are zealous for good works. That phrase occurs six times in Titus. Every single chapter it occurs, which is an indication that this is an important thing. There are things that God has for us, his people, to do. And an amazing thing is, last week, if you were here when, when Jordan uh, preached, or if you weren't, you can listen to it online, and uh, I wrote down several things that he said, and one of them was, he said was basically this. He asked the question of, what would it be like if the, if the church as a whole took what Paul was saying and took this leadership stuff into their lives and didn't leave it for just the leaders? What if every single person in the church took this leadership talk that Paul was talking about and, and sought to weave it into their lives? And I simply want to affirm that the question Jordan was asking was a good one because that is exactly what Paul's intent is here in the letter of Titus. Because you can take the words and the concepts of what Paul says that the elders or the overseers are to be for here, the, you know, the deacons function in that role. The words that Paul uses there are things that you find for all believers in the rest of the New Testament. Every single one of them. Now, some people will kind of push back on me with that because uh, about the, the, the teaching part. And not everyone is required and asked to teach. And on one hand, it's like, okay, yes, I concede that. But yet also, what are you doing when you're mentoring someone or when you're discipling someone? Are you not teaching them? And what are you doing even when you're just kind of living your life? Are you not teaching and you're modeling for people a way in which to live? And I would have to say, yes. You see, the grace of God trains us and it's training us to eventually be these people that would be entrusted with leadership in a church, would be another way of saying it. All these things trace out to other people. Now, sometimes in my mind, I have to throw out these caveats, because sometimes in my mind, when I make statements like that, I think of the extremes to which I can go in my mind, so I just kind of assume that other people can go too. And one extreme to which I go in my mind is, well, if, if these things, if, and I, I like to term these qualities, these qualities of these people that are being entrusted with leadership, and I like qualities because it's not like a checklist, these are things that are to be woven into someone's being and take root in their soul, and it's going to be, it's going to differ a little bit depending on the situation in which they're in, because if you compare the list in Timothy with the list in Titus, they're very similar, but they're not identical, because they're different cities, Okay? So we're talking about godliness and submission to Jesus and him working about change in our lives. And so on one hand, I go to one extreme and I think, well, then why is there even a need for church leadership if all these things are what believers are to do anyway? So that's one extreme. But that's not what Paul is saying. You see, we have to kind of go somewhere here in the middle to where basically here one extreme is like we don't even need the leaders and the other extreme over here is we must have these leaders because they need to help with all these things and we need to bridge the gap and be somewhere in the middle. And what we see is these qualities that Paul is putting forth are things and people that have them are entrusted with leadership because they're further along in their journey of following Jesus. They have fruit in their lives. They have things that we are to uh, aspire to in a sense because they're showing us concretely what Jesus is like. This is things that Paul calls all of us to. 
And that brings me to this tension when we come to the Bible, and that the Bible is so amazing to me because it's for, for many reasons. Uh, but one of the things and way, ways in which is it amazing to me is, is how it holds things in tension so well. And I think we need to learn to live in tension a whole lot better. Um, we need to define reality carefully based on what the Bible shows us. Because on one hand, we have this tension in which the Bible is very clear about who we are as individuals and our weaknesses and our struggles. And I will go, for example, to Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus is with his disciples. The night he was betrayed, and he, they're in uh, the garden, and he brings his closest friends with him, and he goes off to pray, and he comes back, and they're asleep. And he's like, my goodness, you couldn't even stay awake for a single hour with me to pray. And he says, pray that you don't enter in temptation because while the spirit is willing, the flesh is what? Weak. Okay? So that's one tension. But then the other tension is that God looks at us, looks at me, looks at you, and knows the things of which we are capable. And I think we are capable of far, far more than we think we are. And I think we need to hold both of those tensions together. The reality of our frailty and the reality of what God believes and knows we can do. And it's amazing how Paul kind of weaves that here into the letter of Titus as well. And he taps into some Old Testament uh, imagery and language as he does this. One of the ways he does this is we're going to back up into chapter 1. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. I would encourage you to underline or circle elect there. And you see, elect is one of these, uh, sometimes kind of one of these tricky theological words. And we start to talk about elect and who's elect and who's not elect and who does God choose. And if he chooses some, does he not choose some others? And a whole lot of things that are worthy of talking about and worthy of studying and searching out. But I just want to show you a place or two in the, in the Old Testament where this word is used. One of them is in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 4, where it says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen or my elect, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. So we see that God has chosen, he has this select group of people, Israel, and he's wanting to work through them for the benefit of, of some others. I equip you. They're being equipped for a task. You can also write in the margins of your Bible, although not, we're, we're not going to turn there, uh, Isaiah 42, 1. There it's talking about the servant of the Lord, and through there it kind of goes back and forth between, like, is this Israel collectively, or is this uh, the servant, like, uh, prefiguring Jesus? It goes back and forth there. But later on in Isaiah chapter 49 about how God's people were to be a light for the nations. And so there's this blending in which God chooses or God elects people, but is it for their benefit and their benefit alone? And the biblical story would say No. A reason they are chosen is for the benefit of others. And we can trace this back even to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, where he says, basically, you leave the things you know, your land, your people, your customs, and you follow me, and I will bless you. And you see, when God blesses people, he blesses them so that his grace flows through them to be a blessing for others. 
Because that little part with Abram in the calling in verse 3 ends with, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God chooses, God elects, God blesses. We receive amazing benefits from that. But it's also for the sake of others because God has chosen to work through people. Back to Titus, another imagery and word that he uses in chapter 2, verse 14. Talking about Jesus, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. That word there, uh, of his own possession, you could circle or underline that. And in the margin of your Bible or make a note somewhere, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. That's where the word is used. And see what is happening there in Exodus chapter 19 is that God has brought the Hebrew people out of the land of Egypt out of slavery. And Exodus chapter 19 starts with, you've seen all the things that I did and the power with which I did this, which is all grace type things. And I brought you to myself. And he's entering into this relationship with them and giving them the offer before them. And he says, if you will commit yourself to me, then although the whole earth is mine, you will be my treasured possession. That's that word. See, Paul's tapping into their story, the story of God, the story of God choosing, of God electing people and bringing them in for the sake and the purpose of making him known to others. Paul himself, Acts chapter 9, the text talks about him being God's chosen, but it wasn't for his own sake. Did he benefit? Yes, But he was the apostle or the sent one to the people who were not ethnically Jewish, to the Gentiles. You see, what I'm saying here, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is that if you are in Christ, it is not for your benefit alone. I I think we know these things, but I think we need to continuously be reminded of these things. These are just some basic foundational things. You are in Christ, you receive blessings for being in Christ, but yet it is for the sake of those who have not yet heard. It's for the sake of those who have heard and are are struggling or have some doubts or, or who are rebelling in some fashion. God is at work restoring all things back to himself. As we say here, one person, one place at a time. And so what are we doing with that? Well, I hope we're waiting. I hope we're waiting. Just come back to the text in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Or back in 12, how we're trained to say no to things, trained to live in a certain way. And then verse 13, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I do want to flesh out just a little bit of what Paul is talking about with this word for training here. I mean, or for, not for training, for waiting. You see, we're not uh, strangers to waiting. We wait quite a bit, right? And I'm just curious, how many of you waiting, top of your list of things to do? Like on your to-do list at the morning, like number one, wait. But that's actually not a bad idea. I tell you what, if you're afraid of to-do lists because you never accomplish anything, just start with number one, wait, and I guarantee you'll be able to check it off a few times during the course of a day. It may happen, it may happen when you're sitting at a stoplight and you want to turn left. And you can't turn left because the light says you can only turn left on a green arrow and you have a red and everyone else is going through and there's no one coming and you know, you know that you could safely turn left. 
Because there's no one coming your way. And you're thinking, my goodness, why can't they give special driver's licenses for people who know how to drive, who can turn left safely, not into oncoming traffic? Does anybody else feel my pain with that? There's a guy, thank you, a couple. Yeah, all right. I'm just seeing some people kind of like, yeah, I don't want to acknowledge that. But I said, oh, that just pains me. I'm way better than I used to be. It still kind of pains me. Or we wait... We wait when we go to the store. We wait in like some semblance of a line. I mean, it's not really a line anymore because there's tape on the floor. Just kind of like there's tape and I'm not supposed to go past that line. Sorry for the person training in the back first service. Made it kind of rough on you <laughs> moving around. But, but I mean, it's like, we're, we're, it's like we're kids again and it's like instead of a line, we're like connecting the dots, right? You just go from this line to that line. When you're waiting there, we're not talking about that type of waiting, this waiting is a waiting loaded with expectancy. The word is used in Luke chapter 2 where Simeon was a devout and righteous man. He would go to the temple daily because he was longing to see and the Holy Spirit had told him that you will not pass until you see the king, until you see the Christ. And he was waiting expectantly. It's in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus talks about uh, us being like people who are waiting for the master to come home to the feast. It's not a waiting where you're just kicked back doing whatever you want. No, it's like you're doing things that are worthwhile and enjoying yourself, but also you have an eye on the door and you're looking out and you're scanning the horizon to see is the master coming because you want to be ready for him. It's a word for waiting that's used in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus welcomes sinners. It's like Jesus is actively pursuing them. He's waiting for them, but he is pursuing them as well. That, this is the type of the waiting that we're invited to do. We're to be actively looking for Jesus' return. We're to be actively saying no to things. We're to be actively saying yes to other things because we're being trained by God's grace. And with this, I do, I do need to make something very clear here because I do not want to be misunderstood. You are loved... For who you are right now, in this room or online, you're loved for who you are, period. No questions asked. You're loved for who you are. Even those not in Christ, you're loved because you are part of God's beloved creation. You're loved for who you are, and also, God's love is the most powerful, changing force in the universe. So you're loved for who you are, and there are good works that God has for us to do, and he wants us to step into those things because that is really the path of life. But you stepping into those things does not mean God loves you more. It doesn't tip the balance of love in his heart or anything like that. You're loved for who you are, but his love changes and transforms us, and God is just saying, but I have so much more for you. I want you to be experiencing my love in this way. I want you to be a conduit where my love and my grace goes through you and it blesses other people. That is what he is inviting us into. You know, I, I can't help but think, and I know Garen, I know Garen talks about this a lot, and I wholeheartedly agree with him because when I became a father, it really helped me to filter and see some things a little bit differently in Scripture. Because for those who are parents, or if you're, if you're a grandparent, you still are a parent, right? But you have uh, 
sorry, things. And uh, you, you have your, your grandchildren and, you know, all these things. But if you, if you remember being a parent or even if you're not one, you can just think about kids or hear what other people talk about with their kids. And from day one, that child is loved, right? From day one. And that child does what? Not much. It can't even really eat. It has to be helped to nurse. It has some instincts, yes. But it nurses and it fills its diaper. And that's it. It doesn't even roll around for a while. I mean, smiles, eh. I mean, I know what it's like. Is that a smile? I don't know. Is that a smile? It's like, you'll claim a smile if the lips just kind of move. I said, and that was at me. That was at me, right? You know, parents, like, which one did they smile at first? But that child is so loved. And they have not done a single thing. Now, day number 3,650 rolls around. And if that child is just laying there, filling their diaper, being helped to eat, guess what the parents are thinking? There's something wrong here. And if the parents aren't thinking that, then the family friends are thinking, do we tell Bill and Susie that something's not right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with loving your kid, but the kid's 10, right? Still loved. And I understand here, once again, there are developmental things that happen, and there are instances where that is the case, and those children are wholeheartedly loved, but something has not worked for the developmental process of that child, is what I'm saying. We are loved for who we are, but God invites us in to so, so, so much more. And with that, I'm struck by a phrase in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Just hop with me there, if you will. Where Paul is writing, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. That phrase there, the God who never lies, it's amazing just thinking about that. Now, there's some ways in which it ties directly into Cretan culture. You heard Jordan talk about, you know, the, the poet uh, that Paul alludes to a little bit later on. Uh, that was, he's also, uh, you know, in other ancient sources as well. It, it ties in a little bit to their, uh, the, some mythology that they had in their island, which was the birthplace of Zeus, uh, Greek chief god in the pantheon and how he was pretty deceitful in his ways and Paul's saying that you know the the real god of Israel um, the god who became flesh in the person of Jesus is nothing like that but the god who never lies and, and it's while it's directed and poignant to the Cretan culture I want us to understand that it's it's poignant for us as well because every culture has lies woven into it and woven through it Every single culture has them. There's lots that I would like to say or, or point out, but um, I won't at this point in time. But I will say that there are, there, there, there's just many. And I can't help but wonder, what lies are we being told in our culture? What lies are we being told in our culture that don't match up with the God who never lies? I'm not talking about, you know, things like, uh, like false hopes, like, you know, uh, earlier this week I made a comment about, you know, being excited. It's toward the end of July and the Royals are a half game out of first place. 
right? And now they're like, I don't know, three and a half games out, which if you are laughing with me, it's because it's like, what, a 60-game season? So three and a half games may as well be 50, <laughs> I guess the way it is going. Uh, I'm not talking about like a, a false hope, that type of thing. I, I'm talking about really deep-seated lies. And what I want to talk very poignantly about is that there's a lie in our culture that you can't change. And sometimes this lie even finds its way into the church as well. That you can't change, or maybe you don't even need to change. You're just born this way, you just need to follow your heart. You see, every single one of us, every single one of us, longs for change. We've longed for it since we were a little kid. When it came time for make-believe, I don't know that anybody wanted to just be themselves. Oh, you be He-Man, you be the star actor, you be whatever the case may be, PJ Mask, whoever it is, and I'll just be me. No. I think we all wanted to be something different. And even today, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all want to be something different. Now, it ranges from maybe a different job to something different about us in our, in our habits, but it could be something a little more substantial about wanting to be a little more patient or more loving or, or, or maybe not, not being such a doormat and standing up for ourselves a little bit more from time to time. We all have this desire to change. We all have this desire to be something a little different, and I want us to understand that this is a God-given gift that he has put in us. It is a God-given gift that he has put in us. And when we live in a culture that says change is impossible or you shouldn't desire change for other people, we're buying a lie. We've been married for like 16 and a half years now. And if I was the same person today that I was on December 20th, 2003, guess what? That'd be pretty miserable for my wife. As well as our kids And as well as me. It's not that I was a horrible person back then. I was fully devoted to following Jesus and and doing things for him. But yet I've changed as time has gone on. And if I hadn't changed, then something would be amiss. We desire and we long for change. It is a God-given gift to us. Just think about Jesus telling people that if you do not turn and become like little children, you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. What's involved in that but change, right? Or Paul talking about how you are now clothed in Christ, so these are the things that you are to put off, and these are the things that you are to put on. That's change language. And we need to change our thinking. We need to be self-controlled in our thinking, and we need to see things not through the lens of this is like do's and don'ts, but this is the invitation that God has for us to live to truly experience life in the way that he desired it for our blessing and for the blessing of those around us. We are destined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And if that isn't change, I don't know what is. Because I look at what Jesus did and I look at me and there's a bit of a gap. I don't know about you. We long for something more because it's woven into us. But you see, I understand what it's like to be discouraged. 
I'm telling you things confidently that the Bible asserts, but I still struggle with this. I want to be very clear with that. And so I have to ask myself the question that I asked back in March um, while doing this, while, while preaching, but I want to ask it again because it's a good question. In the times of discouragement, and it's okay to be discouraged. We just went through prayer, and we can go through the Psalms. We see discouragement and people being real and honest with discouragement all through the biblical story. That is a good thing to do. But I have to ask myself sometimes, when I feel like throwing in the towel, do I believe more in the transformative power of death than I do in the transformative power of the Holy Spirit? In other words, do I just feel like giving up and knowing that someday God will bring about this change in me, or do I believe that the Holy Spirit can bring about change in me now? Because I want you to resonate, I want you to, to think about this during the course of the week. If you are in Christ, you have one-third of the eternal trinity living inside of you. Right? If you are in Christ, you have one-third of the eternal holy trinity living inside of you. That's just... It's mind-blowing. And we're loved for who we are. And God calls us to step into more. And this is where I say seeing things from the vantage point of the other as I wrap up is a holy endeavor because I want to ask the question, how does God see you? How does he see you? I don't know what the answer is for you. But if it's not beloved, if it's not his child, if it's not one who's received mercy, if it's not one who is beautiful, it's not one who is any of those things, then, then something's amiss. And we need to work to see things from God's perspective and how he sees us because that cracks the door and opens up the doorway to what is possible. I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not talking about mustering up the willpower or the gumption to change or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. I have no interest in behavior modification or legalism or viewing the Bible as a list of do's and don'ts. But I am very interested in what one-third of the Holy Trinity can do inside of me and inside of you and inside of this body as a whole. And so while we're no longer having a series based on prayer, what I want to encourage you to do this week in reading through Titus is I just want to encourage you to pray your way through the book of Titus. It's such an amazing thing to pray Scripture. And here's just a few ways in which you could do that. In Titus chapter 2, when it talks about older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, you could just pray, God, would you raise up people here that are, have these qualities? Would you, would you do that, God? Would you raise up older men who are this way? Or if you are an older man, would you just ask God to be bringing about those changes in you? Ask God to raise up older women who will train the younger women. We go down a little bit further in... in uh, uh, and the younger men, too, to be self-controlled, this thinking and being trained by God's grace. You could get into the verse 9. I didn't, you know, touch the slavery issue this morning, not that I'm afraid of it. I just know that at some point in the not-too-distant future, Garen's going to do some things on race and ethnical difficulties and tensions that we have in our culture. But one of the things that you could do while you're praying your way through Titus, when you get to chapter 2, verse 9, and this issue of slavery, is you could just pray, God, would you help people see, would you help the church to be able to, uh, in, in appropriate ways, communicate, Communicate and give people open ears to understand that the slavery that the Bible quote unquote condones, and that's 
uh, not really the case if you read Philemon and what Paul is asking Philemon to do, but the reality that there is slavery, would you help people to see that it is nothing like the slavery that happened in our culture, where it was ethnically and race-based? The people who were slaves in the biblical culture, they were conquered in war, or they sold themselves into slavery, and they could buy their freedom, or they were entrusted with the run of the master's house. It is drastically different than what we experience in our culture. Would you tear down that stronghold that keeps people from following you because they think the Bible endorses slavery, which we agree is abhorrent today? Those are things you can pray as you're working your way through Titus. But again, as I said, you are loved for who you are, but God is calling you into more. Please, please, please spend some time in verses 11 through 14. And just pray. God, your grace is so amazing. What are you wanting me to say no to? What are you wanting me to let go of? What is ungodly that you want to strip away? Help me to, help me to have open hands to let that go. Father, your grace trains us. So what aspect of self-control do you want me to step into? Help me believe in the transformative work of your Holy Spirit more than I believe my past because you've ransomed me and I am no longer a slave, but I am free. God, what zealous works do you have for me to step into? Father, help us to be people who live within the tension of reality, knowing who we are, being honest with that. But may we not ignore the reality of who you are and the power you have to bring about change and transformation and be honest with that. Help us to set aside time to be still and to be with you. Teach us ways to bring that practice into our lives daily so we can do it even in the midst of a, of a situation we're facing or work we're doing. Show us the things that you have for us, the good works that you have, and God, may we also, because this can be a trap too. For some of us, the last thing we need is something else to do what we really need is to sit and contemplate and to think about the ways in which you could serve us. And when you bring that healing into our life, how we can therefore serve out of that. Maybe some of our past biggest failures are the seedbed for something beautiful. I think of Paul who persecuted the early church, was zealous and zealous for you and doing wholeheartedly what he believed was right and ironically in a beautiful twist, he was the greatest ambassador for Jesus that there probably has ever been, bringing in people who were not ethnically Jewish. God, help us not to shy away from our failures. May we be open to the way in which you can bring healing into them and step into whatever good works you have for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You are sent.